weeks. And what I want to address today in this final message is a problem that I think is best described through a story that I read um, in the book called People to Be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue by Preston Sprinkle. And so I'm just going to read um, the first few paragraphs of the beginning chapter, and I would highly recommend this book. Um, again, it's, the book is called um, People to Be Loved. And, and, and he's trying to create a greater degree of human connection and a, and a strengthening of the love that Christians are called to have to all people as God has love for all people. Um, and, but he, he goes through all of the texts in Scripture that deal with the issue of homosexuality, but then, then, but then strongly um, adds to that biblical teaching um, a, a theology of how Christians are called to engage the people uh, that Christ has died for. It's a great book. Here's, the, here's the, the first few paragraphs. Eric Borges was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different, and other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten, and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric, but faggot. I was stalked, spit on, and ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even church. In his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other youth who have had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others find comfort and hope to pull them through the pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. And he goes on to talk about the, the experiences, and in his research for the book, um, he spent a lot of time with people and neighbors and friends that would not be considered in the sexual majority. And he has a very biblical perspective on gender and sexuality, but his, his insight and his efforts to uh, exhort the church to a higher degree of love um, is, is, quite, is quite thorough and, and quite impressive. So what I want to talk about today is how to develop a culture where we truly are gospel people, where people are attracted to us because of our unity as a family of God, our love for each other, and our love for the world, especially in the context 
of truth. See, we don't, we don't have to jettison truth to express grace and love. And see, that's what John talks about in his first chapter of his gospel. Christ came as the full representation of both, of both grace and of truth. Anybody can be soft on truth and really loving and gracious. And it's not too hard to be really truthful and to be really mean. But to combine the two, where we are face-to-face with the high moral standards that Jesus Christ calls us to, and, and we put ourselves before that standard, we are looking at the logs in our eyes before we take out the specks in other people's eyes, where we are putting ourselves in front of that full moral standard, where we are putting each other in, terms of, in front of that full moral standard, his calling to holiness, his calling to follow him, to be holy as he is holy, but then also to express the, the life-giving, sacrificial love that Christ also demonstrated and his willingness to enter into the relationships of, and suffering of other people in order to express um, the care that he had for them and to draw them into relationship with him where he would then give them the power and gives us the power to be holy and to be righteous. And so uh, that's the way we wanted to end this series Um, But it's also a great introduction to the series that we're going to start next week on Philippians. What does it mean to be a people who are called to unity and love for the progress of the gospel? And I think it's a, it's a big challenge for us. So I'm I'm excited about the message today and it's, and it's segue into the, the series that we are moving into. So we are called This, this verse that Amanda read, we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. His appeal to the world is coming through us. And so um, I didn't get the, the correction to Renee fast enough, but there are two verses before, chapter, before verse 16 that I wanted to include in this. Um, if you have your Bibles, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. But I'm going to read it. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, the first time I heard somebody read that verse, my mind <laughs> and my spirit and my, my, my soul just kind of came to an abrupt halt. And I, was, I, I, I can remember who I was with and what I was doing, but I immediately, everything just kind of, I just kind of stopped. And, and everything around me was cl- closed off. And I simultaneously had two thoughts. I don't know what that means experientially. I don't know what it means for the love of Christ controls us. 
I mean, I, th- by this time in my life, after, when I had heard this verse, and 2 Corinthians isn't one of those books that you typically read a lot. It's a very experiential book from the hand of Paul talking about what it means to be in the ministry. But it's, it, it was read to me aloud in, the, in a group setting and I immediately realized that I did not know what that meant experientially. I could explain it to you theologically, but to say the love of Christ is what is controlling me. It is what is directing my will. It is what is directing my motivations. Where I could, where I could say that, I, I couldn't say that. I couldn't say it is the love of Christ that determines everything I say, everything I think, and everything I do. I remember thinking, I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. But then I also had a second thought, and that's just the, from, probably from the Holy Spirit. Not probably, definitely. I felt this, this sense of confidence, that because I had devoted my life to the ministry by this point. I had this sense of confidence that, that God would eventually teach me what that means. That, that God would eventually shape me in such a way to where I would get to a point in my life as a minister of the gospel where I could say, the love of Christ controls me. And he's not saying me. He says us. For the love of Christ controls us. And this is the calling that all of us as Christians have. We can explain the gospel. We can tell you theologically what it means. We can recite the words. But the challenge that we have before us is, do, can we say that with confidence that the love of Christ controls us experientially? So what does it mean? Well, this passage continues to explain what that means. And so we come to the next verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We regard no one according to the flesh. And the statement here where he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What he means by that statement is that, you know, there was a time in our life where Jesus Christ was just a man. He was just a human being. But at some point, we came to know Christ as God and King, as our Savior and Lord, and we no longer regarded him just as a man. So we are called to regard no one according to the flesh. So what does that, what does that mean? So textually, there are two ideas, and I just wanted to stay within this text to keep it clear there are two ideas present and prominent in, in, in this idea of regarding no one according to the flesh. And the first one is this idea of regard. What does it mean to regard? It means to know or to understand someone. And I really like this, to possess information about. So it is, to, to regard someone is to have a way of thinking and holding what you know about somebody. And the second idea, which comes later in the passage, but I have to pull it up now, is this, this idea of what it means to count 
trespasses. As it later will say, as Amanda read, that God no longer counted their trespasses against them. So a trespass is a violation of a law. It is a failure. It is a misstep. The broader idea of sin is, is general. Okay, the word sin is a general term for just basically general uh, ugliness, moral, uh, moral inability, uh, things are just bad. Okay, that's sin. The word trespass or transgression is a violation of a specific law. It is a misstep. And so, to count trespasses, well, first of all, to count, this, I, this word count is to keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action. Okay, so if we think about gathering information about people, if we are counting something, we are gathering information about people that we're later going to use in our actions with that person or those people. To count is to deliberate or to charge or to conclude something. And so if, if we are going to hold people and count people's trespasses against them. That means that the information that we hold in our minds about somebody is characterized, characterized by the trespasses they commit against God and against others and against ourselves. And that is what it means to regard somebody according to their trespasses. You think about that person. You conclude about that person. You deliberate about that person in regard to how they are failures. That's what it means to regard somebody according to the flesh. You think about them as a failure, as a lawbreaker. And to, and to follow this instruction to no longer regard someone according to the flesh is to no longer regard someone as a failure and as a lawbreaker. And to be controlled by the love of Christ, he says, we are controlled by the love of Christ. Therefore, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. That's what that means. We are called not to do that. Why? Because anyone in Christ is a new creation. Their old body has been it's literally passed away or died. It ceases to exist. Their old person that is categorized and known by their trespasses has been killed. That's why this earlier passage says, for Christ died and all died with him. Our old lives, our old bodies, our old identities have been killed. And we have a new creation. We have literally the term, and I don't know why they don't translate it like this. It literally means to be born. We are new births. We have new identities. We have new selves. And we've talked a lot in this series about our sense of self, our sense of identity. It's central, it's central to the challenges we face in the culture and the confusion that we have about maleness, femaleness, Straight, gay, homosexual, trans, by all these things are, 
are around this idea of identity. And what the scriptures say is that Christ has died and all have died with, them, with him. The old identities have been killed. And we now have new identities. We are now all identified now as Christians. The, the term is literally Genesis. We have experienced Genesis. Well, we could say, well, this addresses believers, because believers are new creations, right? Those who are in Christ, he says, are new creations. And yes, that's true. But then it moves on in the passage, and it talks about how God views the world through the work that he did through his son Jesus. And so we continue, verses 18 through 20. And this is from God. This is from God. This, this work of a new creation through Christ is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so this sounds very familiar to those of us who have memorized uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The world. The, not just Christians. The world. And entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So God has reconciled. Now the word reconcile means to reestablish. This is from the, the low night of Greek lexicon. I love the way it says this. To reestablish friendly, friendly interpersonal relations after they have been disrupted or broken. See, we were all disrupted in our friendly relationships with God. And God said, I love these people. I love these people whom I have created. I am going to provide a means through which I can get back onto a friendly interpersonal relationship. Adam and Eve, before they took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had a friendly relationship with God. And then after they ate of that tree, that friendly relationship was broken and covered by shame and fear and guilt and separation and isolation and anger and violence. So this work of reconciliation, God extends through Jesus Christ so that we could be back on a friendly basis with God. Where God, where, and the scriptures say of, of Abraham, he walked with God as a friend. As a friend. And that is what we are called to do with the world. We are to have friendly interpersonal relations with all people. We don't deliberate and conclude who they are according to their trespasses. See, if we view the world through the lens of their trespasses, and that is how we think about them. That is how we act towards them. 
we will, we will be judgmental and unfriendly and harsh and cruel. And we're going to see why later. But if we judge, if we, if we deliberate and, to, and conclude how we think about people in the world through the lens of the reconciling work of Christ who has reconciled the world. Now, this is where it gets really challenging and it can get really dangerous in terms of your theology. This is not saying that, Christ, that Christ's work of reconciling the world, which this passage teaches, Colossians teaches, that Christ, that God reconciled through Christ everything in heaven and on earth to him through his blood. That's what Colossians teaches. That is not saying that everyone is, quote, saved. That is not saying that universal salvation is what the Bible teaches. Because clearly throughout Scripture, and even in these very books themselves, the teaching on obtaining that reconciliation comes through faith in the work that Christ has, did, that has done. There's some of that southern grammar coming back. My folks celebrated their 50th anniversary yesterday, so we went down to Ames. I'm from Missouri, and all my Missouri family came up, and there were some jokes about our southern grammar that occasionally comes out in my sermons my wife gently reminds me of. So I've lost my point now. No, I haven't. So Christ has done the work of reconciling all the world, everything in heaven and on earth, to God through his death. That means, that means there, is, there is nothing left that needs reconciling work. There's no limit to the reconciling, to the wrath appeasing that Jesus Christ's blood has performed. There's no end to it. The potential never runs out. Which means then, there is an open invitation for all the world to enter into that reconciliation through faith. So it is that, it is that message and perspective of hope, that appeal that God has to the world, the, the appeal that God is making to the world through us. And it says that God does not count their trespasses against them. He is appealing to the world to believe in his son's sacrifice and that through that sacrifice they can find the life of righteousness. They can find the identity that provides strength and security. They can, they can find the completeness and the wholeness and the community that we are all longing for. Remember when we went through the gender dysphoria and... and, and Lawrence touched on it last week in regard to homosexuality. A lot of the people that feel same-sex attraction or feel like they are a, a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body, a lot of what they are looking for is a sense of identity and a sense of community. And historically, the church has said, if you have these kinds of sins and trespasses, 
You're not wanted or welcome here. In fact, you fit the description of how those parents talked about their son, Eric. So, one of the things Preston Sprinkle does is he goes and looks at what kinds of sins does God seem to be most harsh about. And he, and he brings up Sodom and Sodomites. Because, I mean, the traditional understanding of Sodomites is those who engage in, in homosexual activity. But if you look throughout the, the, the rest of Scripture, and you get to the judges, and the Sodomites are brought up, and the Sodomites, the, the homosexual activity isn't even addressed. What the judges, the judges, not the book of judges, excuse me, the prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, and all, the prophets speak of Sodom, of being a place known for their gluttony. Their gluttony. Their consumption. Their lack of concern for the poor. That's how the prophets understood Sodom and Sodomites. We have a tendency, and again, we're going to look as to why here in a moment. We have a tendency as God's people. You saw, you, you saw it in the Old Testament. You, saw, you see it in the New Testament. You see it in the Pharisees. You see it in the early church. You see it in the book of Romans. You see it in the book of Galatians. We as a people of God, when we stop walking in the gospel, have a tendency to create divisions around moral standards that none of us can attain. But we pick out the, we pick out the them, and we gather together as the us's. And there's all kinds of, there's race, there's socioeconomic standards, there's sexual morals, there's straight, gay, you name it. We as a church have followed the culture in creating divisions around all kinds of things. But we are called to be different. We are called to look at no one, at no one, according to the flesh. No one. We are called to not look at Christians according to the flesh, which means that we don't think about and deliberate other people according to their failures. And we don't think about non-Christians according to the flesh, which means we don't think about our non-Christian friends and neighbors and family, the world out there, according to their trespasses and their failures. We look at everybody through the lens of the possibility of Christ reconciling them. And so how do we do this? How do, do we develop this strength? And how do we develop this capacity to be controlled by the love of Christ? And he tells us in the last verse and a half, Paul says, we implore you then on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That second half of verse 20, super interesting. We implore you on behalf of Christ. He's writing to a church. Be reconciled to God. And I, Paul, I just thought you said that Christ has reconciled all the world to God. And these are believers in Jesus Christ. They have believed through faith in the sacrificial death of Christ 
to bring about their salvation and to cleanse them of their sin and to find the new identity. And now you're telling them as a church to be reconciled with God? And so we have to, this is, this is one of the things that you, that you in, in order to walk in the controlling power of Christ's love, this is something that you have to get down. And whether you use these specific words or not, you have to get the idea. The Bible refers to salvation in several ways. There is a once-for-all immediate experience of salvation that is called justification. That's called getting saved. That's called born again. The scriptures have a whole lot of terms to refer to it. Okay, That's a once-for-all legal declaration that God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, and we are now declared to have the righteousness of God through Christ. We took on Christ's righteousness, okay? His goodness, His moral standard, His fully humanness, His relationship with the Father, His full faith, His unwavering obedience, His his ability to love with truth and grace, all the things that made Jesus Jesus we've now received that once-for-all declaration of our justification through Jesus Christ. Then there is sanctification, or as the scriptures will also say, you're getting saved or you're getting delivered. This is a process. It's a process of you becoming who you already are, which is strange. It's like when Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come, and we look out into this world and say, you know, it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is here. It doesn't seem like Jesus is sitting on his throne. It doesn't seem like all the violence and evil is destroyed. It doesn't seem like everybody is happy and at peace. No. So John calls this, the dark is fading away and the light is emerging. All right? It's the already but not yet. It's already happened. It is finished. Jesus rose from the dead, and in his resurrection from the dead, he destroyed Satan, sin, and death. The experience of that is still happening and will culminate when Christ returns. Okay? That's the same for us. We have been declared righteous. We've been made new. Our sins have been forgiven. We are no longer the old self. We have a new self. But we, in our experience, is now, we are now in process of becoming the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And then when we get there, it's called glorification. Where we will, in the language in John's first epistle is beautiful, when we see him, we will become like him. So that is why we long to see Jesus Christ. Because at that moment when we see Jesus Christ, we're going to be completely transformed. Our old bodies will be gone. We will get a new body. And the older you get, the more grateful and thank you, thankful you are for that promise. New bodies. Completely new minds. No more temptation. No more doubt. No more struggle. You don't have to read your Bibles anymore. You don't have to pray anymore. You don't have to do any disciplines anymore. You're just going to be living in this life of freedom. I won't have to exercise anymore. It's going to be beautiful. There will be world peace. No more strained race relationships. No more nations fighting against nations. No more murdering in our streets. No more blindness. No more strokes. No more death. Glorification. 
We are in the middle process. We are becoming Christ-like. We are new creations, period. We are becoming a new creation. Non-Christians, they are objects of God's loving appeal, and we are the means through which that appeal is made. And if we can't go into this world not regarding people according to the flesh, then we've got no business going out into the world to try to be witnesses. We will not make an appeal to the world if we regard people according to their flesh. We're going to come across as the Pharisees did. We're going to come across as so many church leaders and so many denominations and so many people's experiences of church do. They are self-righteous people. So we have to take on and become the righteousness of God. We have to be controlled by the love of Christ. This, the passage there says, it says that, that God took him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're characterized fully by sin. Straight, gay, black, white, man, woman, you name it. We are all what the scriptures call sin. Jesus is the only one without sin. So God took him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that we who were sin might become righteous. And only in Christ's righteousness can we be controlled by the love of God and, and enter into a lifestyle where we can truly make an appeal. We've mentioned Jonathan Haidt several times. He's got this book called uh, The Righteous Mind. He says that we have an obsession as human beings with becoming righteous. This guy's a non-believer liberal. New York University PhD. We have an obsession with becoming righteousness, which he says then inevitably leads us to self-righteousness. To self-righteousness, which means this. In my recognized inability to be fully righteous, I'm going to start defining righteousness by who I already am. And anybody that is not like me is therefore then unrighteous. And so this is what the church has done. We've created this moral stalwart wall around sexual morality. And that's the new gospel. That's the new standard of righteousness. not Jesus. And so because that is the new standard of righteousness, and in the, in the early church, it was Judaism as the standard of righteousness that they struggled with. Our, our Judaism today is sexual morality. It's the new standard. If you can't fit the exact ideal circumstances, which let me tell you, straight, gay, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, let me tell you, you are sinning in every expression of that. All right, I am straight, I'm a man, I know what that means to be a man, I strive to walk in it, but I sin as a man and I sit as a heterosexual. Sin, we can't escape from. None of us can meet the standard. 
But that's what we have created a wall of righteousness around. And anybody that doesn't fit it, and this is a challenge also, we do a poor job in regards to singles. Because this is such a new standard, it's like the full expression of Christianity is to have heterosexual sex with your spouse. Of the, obviously, heterosexual sex. So, so what is a life, what is, what is the fullness of life in Christ for a single? I wasn't planning on talking about that that much, but that is not the standard of righteousness. Our sexual experiences as heterosexual people that know Jesus. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. Jesus is. And Jesus alone. And he's given his life. So we, we've got to change our standard of righteousness and to recognize that it is Jesus and only Jesus. And we can stop looking for something to make us feel complete and secure and full because Jesus has already done it. And that gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to remove the pressures on us to be something that we're not. And it gives us the freedom to be generous to others because I'm no longer using them to give me a sense of my righteousness. Their otherness doesn't make my uniqueness better. We see ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ possessing his righteousness, and we see Christians as possessing the righteousness of Jesus and therefore fully righteous, and we see those who have not believed in Jesus Christ as people who may believe in Jesus Christ if they can see that we are pointing them to Christ and are willing to walk through their trials and their sufferings just like we are all walking through our own sufferings with each other, different sufferings, different trials, different sins. Let's throw them all in the same basket and say, hey, Anybody that's dealing with sin but longs to know and become like Jesus, let's call come on board here as a family and work on this together and be open and honest and truthful and loving. That's what we're called to do. That is what it means to have the love of Christ control you. To be free of trying to be righteous through some other standard. To accept that Jesus has given you his and he's made possible his righteousness for everybody else. Let me pray.